0: I have to turn this in for a grade, way, Andrew. This is a wonderful letter. This is a short letter. This is the shortest letter in all of the, uh, the scriptures here in the New Testament here. But as believers, we need to ask ourselves a question. What is the gospel? We talk about it. We preach about it. We're Reformed people. We're Presbyterians. We teach it. We preach it. We love the gospel. But what is it? What would you say is the gospel? Well, at its heart, the gospel is the message of how Jesus reconciles sinful men and women to a holy God through his death, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Men are estranged from God. They are enemies of God. And the gospel is the message of how we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But to be reconciled to God is only the beginning. We are to be reconciled because of who we are and who we belong to. God has therefore given the commandment to love one another as he has loved us. Therefore, we're to be reconciled, not just to God, but to one another. It is not just vertical, but horizontal. And this is the relationships that we need to be applying this to. We need to believe not just vertically but horizontally, we must apply the gospel to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In Philemon, we see the gospel applied to the lives of three people, Philemon himself, Paul, and Onesimus, whom we will meet in this letter. Onesimus is Philemon's runaway slave. And we see the fruit of the gospel displayed in the reconciliation of estranged relationships in the lives of two men who have become brothers because of Christ's suffering and death, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory. Now, verses one and two of which I read open with Paul's characteristic greetings as the principal author of the letter to the recipients, who are identified as Philemon, whom he calls his beloved fellow worker, Apvia, a sister, and Archippus, a fellow soldier. Now, commentators believe that Philemon is likely a a wealthy landowner, perhaps an upper-middle-class tradesman or craftsman or or a property owner. Apphia is probably his wife, Archippus, his beloved son or his son. And this would be representative of a typical Greco-Roman household with the immediate family, perhaps some extended family, including children, parents, servants, and slaves. And Paul also greets the church, the house church, that meets in the home of Philemon. The letter itself, though addressed to the household of Philemon, is clearly intended to be shared with a larger body, the church that meets within that house. Paul's intent was to appeal to Philemon, but also to incorporate the church itself in the process of reconciliation. Now, the matter of a runaway slave was no small matter indeed. It was serious business in the first century. Penalties for being captured included... Not exclusively, but included death by torture. Yet it seems unlikely that Onesimus was just a simple slave working in the fields. Now, based on the fact that he was able to escape and finance his trip to Rome about a thousand miles from inland Asia Minor, what's modern day Turkey, this would indicate that he had access to money, funds, property, probably the household finances of Philemon himself. So, it might be fair to conclude that Onesimus isn't just some laborer out in the field, but that he actually has a larger role in the lives of the household itself. And his betrayal and escape caused significant disruption to the household of Philemon. Now, this very personal letter was sent by Paul, who is imprisoned. He's actually on house arrest in Rome. It's sent by the hand of a man named Tychicus, who is mentioned in in the letters of Colossians. And Tychicus is carrying Paul's letter to the church at Colossians, the letter to Colossians, which precedes us by a few verses, a hundred miles east of Ephesus, which was likely the home district of Philemon as well. Now, Philemon, living in Colossae, is a little bit off the beaten path, and I'll get to that in just a second. But the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon are related in time and authorship. They were written at the same time by the same person, but the letters could not be more different in tone and tenor. The letter to the church at Colossae, if you have read it for yourself, soars with the beauty of Paul's doctrine of Christ's efficiency and the riches of his glory in the church. The letter to Philemon is warm, personal, and overflows with affection. Paul's love for both Philemon and for Onesimus makes this impassioned plea for mercy strike at the most hardened heart. And in this heartfelt letter, Paul demonstrates the truth that because the gospel reconciles man to God in and through Christ, so we also are to be reconciled to one another in and through Christ. In our passage this morning, we'll discover three ways that the gospel is applied through reconciliation. Number one, reconciliation is the key to our fellowship, number two, reconciliation is the evidence of our transformation. And number three, reconciliation is the motivation for our obedience. In verses three through seven, we'll see that reconciliation is the key to our fellowship. Now, in verses three and four, Paul extends his customary greeting to Philemon, mentions his frequent prayers for him, and he gives the reason for his gratitude to Philemon in verse five. Look there with me. Because I hear of your love. And of the faith that you have toward, A, the Lord Jesus, and B, for all the saints. In other words, Paul is familiar with Philemon's demonstrated Christian walk and his concern for the brothers and sisters at Colossae. Now, how would Paul have come across this really intimate knowledge of Philemon's character? Well, there's no record of Paul ever having gone to Colossae. He went to Ephesus, but it does mention a man named Epaphras. Epaphras appears in our letter in verse 23, but he's also mentioned in the letter to the Colossians. So by looking at the two of them, we can assume or presume perhaps that Epaphras is the founder of the church at Colossae. And and Epaphras is imprisoned with Paul in Rome. So that's one source of knowledge. Epaphras is an eyewitness. Epaphras is a resident there. But another source would obviously have been Onesimus himself. The runaway slave, once converted, would have been an inside source reporting and knowing Philemon's generosity and affection for the church. So he heard it from the lips of Onesimus himself. Philemon's love and faith, first toward Christ, and then displayed for all the saints, leads us to verse 6. Read there with me. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, we need to work through this particular verse because this really is the hinge for the rest of the letter. Now, your translation might read something like the sharing of your faith or sharing your faith. And it could cause some people to think that Paul is speaking of evangelism here, you know, going door, doing the evangelism explosion or, or whatever means you do of sharing the gospel with somebody else. But another translation reads this way, and I really like this one. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of christ now that word fellowship is really important and it means that the participation of our shared lives in christ and the family life we share in the faith increases our knowledge of what we have together in christ you might state it this way as one commentator did As we begin to see every good thing that is ours in Christ, we are able to live in fellowship with one another. But as we learn to live in fellowship with one another, we learn at ever deeper levels every good thing that is ours in Christ. You can personalize it this way. The more I know about Jesus and the power of his resurrection in my life, the more I love this amazing woman God has given to me in marriage. And the more I know about Wendy, the more I learn about Jesus and the power of his resurrection in my life. Now, you can't personalize it with Wendy, of course. That's my my way. It's what one writer describes as a reciprocating cycle. Each element feeds each other in ever-increasing influence. To be reconciled to God means to have our former relationship of hatred and antagonism toward God to be buried with Christ in the tomb and to have a new relationship of love and gratitude birthed in his resurrection. This is what Paul means when he calls us a new creation in Second Corinthians chapter 5, one of probably my all-out favorite passage. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And how did that come about? Well, Paul explains this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. To be reconciled to God is the basis of our fellowship with God and with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all going to like each other to the same degree. I'm the oldest of six children, all born in less than eight years. That's no record, but it's no hobby either. I'm closer to some of my siblings than to others, mainly due to temperament and similar interests, but I love all of them, and I have sacrificed for each of them in different ways because they are my siblings. In a similar way, several of you here have or come from large families. Some of you have reached what Pastor Andrew likes to call the pinnacle of Presbyterian productivity, which is apparently somewhere between five and 15 children, somewhere in that spectrum in the area there. The fellowship you share with one another as a parent or a child should give you insight into how God loves his own children and you. And the more you lean into the insight of how God loves you as his own the more you'll learn to love your parents, your wife, your children, your siblings, your brothers, and your sisters in Christ. In verse 7, Paul describes the blessings he's received from Philemon's long-distance love and fellowship. Find his faithfulness. Look with me there. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see, Philemon's generosity, his affection for the church had brought great comfort to Paul in his imprisonment. The same as it would if you were separated from your loved ones and your family. Now, for all the junk that goes on in social media, and I have really tapered back my uh, stream of consciousness on Facebook and Instagram. But for all the junk that goes on with social media, seeing the posts and pictures of our own families Our children, our grandchildren, our brothers and sisters, our friends and relatives brings us much joy and gladness. We are refreshed knowing that our family is well no matter where they might be. We have friends of ours with us this morning who traveled across the country on bicycle beginning in Palm Beach, traveling to California, the West Coast, and then riding back. I was delighted to read of their adventures because I knew that they were well. That's how we keep track of each other sometime in this day and age. And because of the reports from Epaphras and Onesimus about Philemon and his love for the saints at Colossae, Paul can say that his heart too is refreshed. It is rested and revived like a cold drink on a hot day after working outdoors, something I avoid like the plague. You see, not only is reconciliation the key to our fellowship, however, in verses 8 through 16, we see that reconciliation is also the evidence of our transformation. Paul now comes to the meat of his message in verses 8 through 11, his plea to Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. Look with me there at those verses. Paul begins his plea for Onesimus not by appealing to his authority as an apostle, but rather to his status as a prisoner for Christ. Accordingly he says or therefore though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required or what you ought to do yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you I Paul an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus See Paul acknowledges his authority as an apostle though I am bold enough in Christ to issue a command Hey Philemon be reconciled to Onesimus make it right buddy I'm going to check. That's not what he's doing. He could have made an imperative, an order, a command. Now, that's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. You'll remember if you go back through the, the Beatitudes there. If you are offering your, the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, deal with your horizontal relationship with your brother before you make some show of your vertical relationship with God. Paul, however, says rather that for love's sake he makes his appeal the appeal of an old man and a prisoner for the gospel, the same gospel that brought reconciliation to Paul, to Epaphras, to Philemon and his household, his wife, his son. And to others, No, Paul will not make his appeal from his status as an apostle, but rather from his status as a father. In verse 10, he writes this, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. The, uh, the NIV puts it this way, Who became my son while I was in chains. Here is Paul's heart of love, the heart of a father for a child the heart of our, of our father for his own beloved son, a heart overwhelmed with compassion and affection, a heart transformed by the power of the gospel and applying that gospel to each and every relationship. You see, in many ways, this was a test of Philemon's own heart, his own transformation. Had the gospel really transformed him the way it had transformed Paul and the others in the church at Colossae? Could Philemon put away his hurt and his resentment? Could he put away his sense of betrayal and his righteous anger against Onesimus, swallow his own pride, so to speak, and forgive and restore his own runaway houseman? This is why the Apostle John is so adamant in his statements, both in his gospel and in his epistle. He says that we are to love one another. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The more we give ourselves to love one another, the more we experience the love of God in Christ for us. And the more we experience the love of God in our lives, the more we love one another. It is, again, a reciprocating cycle of the Spirit's influence. In verse 11, Paul makes a play on words regarding Onesimus' name. It means useful. And he makes that play with the word useless, if you look down there in the verse there, which is what Onesimus, frankly, proved to be in the past. But who has, by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, become a valuable assistant to Paul and Epaphras in their imprisonment. Now, Paul has not yet been consigned to the dungeons of Rome, but he remains in a sort of house arrest, pending the disposition of his case before the court of Caesar. Instead of an ankle bracelet, he's got an ankle chain. Yet he is still restricted in his movements. He's still not free to leave his quarters, and so he and Epaphras are likely in great need of help with the everyday circumstances of life. Now, some of you, because of COVID, have experienced what it's like to be restricted to your house while you have symptoms, even if only for a few days or a couple of weeks. You probably know how helpful it is To have a spouse or a friend drive over to Target, pick up your groceries or whatever, bring you something to uh, relieve or get your prescriptions from the drugstore. Now, frankly, if they really loved you, they would bring you a Nitro Grande cold brew from Starbucks to prove and demonstrate their love for you. That's happened to me. Such a person would be invaluable to you and to your recovery and your comfort. This is what Onesimus was for Paul, a comfort and an aid. In verse 13, Paul explains his predicament. Look there with me. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Yet Paul has a more critical priority. Reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon is his primary concern. Paul is willing to set aside his own comfort, his own desires, his own needs, for the benefit of seeing Onesimus and Philemon reconciled. That's why he says in verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And in verse 14, he explains his rationale for his decision to send Onesimus back, that your goodness, he writes, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In other words, Paul is willing to let go of Onesimus, who is so useful to him, in order to give Philemon the opportunity to be reconciled to him. You see, reconciliation to be effective requires both parties to meet face-to-face if possible. The offending party must be willing to go and the offended party must be willing to receive. We've been discussing reconciliation as the evidence of transformation. But see how the gospel has transformed Onesimus, The runaway slave who likely absconded from a trusted position in a wealthy home and stolen money to facilitate his escape is now willing to travel back a thousand miles to face the unknown consequences of his sins. As we said earlier, the penalty for the captured runaway slave included death by torture. And yet here was Onesimus demonstrating his own transformation, his own faith in Christ, and his love for his master by risking his life to come home. Rather than writing his own letter of apology, rather than stuffing some money in an envelope with his letter as a token of his sincerity, no, Onesimus makes the trip back in person with Tychicus, carrying the letter as a token of his own sincerity. He makes it back in person, and he finds himself standing at the door of his offended master, ready to make amends. Hello, Philemon. Would Philemon respond in kind? In verses 15 and 16, Paul offers an explanation for the providence of God, which is so clearly on display. Now, I have to ask you, what were the odds that Onesimus, a runaway slave would travel a thousand miles to Rome a city of one million people and come to the home and under the influence of Paul, the apostle what are the odds? it's not like he can Google the address imagine yourself grabbing a train or a bus up to New York City you get off a Penn Station in Manhattan you get off and you start asking around hey, have you seen Paul? Paul who? what's his last name? I think it's the apostle You seen him? You know him? He used to go by Saul. Sound familiar to you? What were the odds? Well, they were, I mean, actually 100%. Why? Because God is directing the steps of Onesimus. He is directing every single event in your life, and he directed Onesimus, the runaway slave, in his sin to come to Paul. We'll see why in just a second. This is perhaps... The explanation offered him in verse 15 and 16. This is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And this transformation also reflects back on our own Reformed theology, doesn't it, concerning the household. You see, Onesimus was likely a member of Philemon's household when Philemon received Christ. And as we see throughout the households in the book of Acts, the convert was baptized and admitted to covenant membership in the church. Likewise, his household was baptized and all were admitted into covenant membership. As a consequence, they were exposed to the gospel, participated in the sacraments, And treated with the benefits of hearing the gospel proclaimed and then lived out in the lives of the regenerate members of the household. It is a great privilege to hear the gospel at all. And for your children to be present as the gospel is preached and believed and lived out in your lives. That's what our Reformed theology is. A demonstration of God's faithfulness to the family. What a comfort this is to believers whose children have been exposed to the gospel as covenant members. While being a covenant member is no guarantee that they are elect, they are still the recipients of gospel mercies. And in time, they may respond to the calling of the Holy Spirit and embrace Christ as their own Savior. Now, this appears to be what happened in the case of Onesimus, a member of the covenant community, yet not yet regenerate, But in the fullness of time and in the providence of God, the Spirit of God leads the runaway slave on a thousand mile journey to be converted by the ministry of the faithful apostle. Who can avoid the obvious conclusions? This is the transformative power of the gospel. Enemies become friends, slaves become brothers, the orphan is adopted, the widow gains a husband the barren become mothers. Hear the word of the Lord again through the Apostle Paul. He has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. As we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And as evidence of your transformation, be reconciled to one another for the sake of Christ. The song goes this way. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Reconciliation is the key to our fellowship. It is the evidence of our transformation. Lastly, in verses 17 through 20, we see that reconciliation is the motivation for our obedience. In verse 17, we finally come to the first imperative of Paul's appeal. If you, Philemon, consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. Now in the Greek, this is emphatic. Receive him as me. In other words, don't receive Onesimus as if he were there on Paul's behalf or standing in for Paul, but rather as if Paul himself showed up at his door. Now, imagine a Secret Service agent showing up at your home one afternoon on behalf of the President. Well, you'd invite him in, offer him a cup of coffee or something to drink, and be polite. I mean, he's a representative of the President, and it doesn't matter who the President is, by the way. But if the President himself were to show up, you'd have prepared and cleaned for days. You'd have cleaned up your silver, brought your silver out, every one of your kids would be cleaned up with haircuts, new clothes, and well, you get the picture. Paul is asking Philemon to imagine that Paul himself is arriving at the door and to respond as if that were the case. To extend to Onesimus the same response as if the courtesy, the affection, and respect as if Paul himself showed up at the door knocking. You see, it is Paul's determination to level the playing field between the three men. He has lowered himself to the status of a father, an old man, and a prisoner. And he has elevated the slave Onesimus to equal footing with the master Philemon. And he has declared that in Christ, the three men are equal. In a single verse, nine words in the Greek, Paul has reconfigured the institution of slavery in the Greco-Roman tradition. And the principles outlined in this letter will be the basis of the abolitionist movement in the 19th and 20th centuries. This was the same Paul who wrote to the Galatians a decade earlier. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In verses 18 and 19 of our letter, Paul acknowledges a condition that might have been met, might have to be met in order for this reconciliation to take place. Look what he says here. If Onesimus has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Or the NIV says, charge it to me. In other words, send the bill to me, Onesimus. And then Paul guarantees the restitution. I, Paul, write with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, many of you dads might know something about this. Have you ever had one of your kids get into some trouble with a neighbor or at the school and you had to pull out your wallet and make it right? Now, none of you kids here, none of you sweet families here. That's never happened to you, I know. One of our boys got into some trouble with a little little gang of skateboarders at a local school, and there was restitution required to fix some minor damages. So what's a dad to do? Send me the bill, officer. I'll pay the tab. It's just what you do as a dad. Now, we shouldn't think that this is just an empty promise either. I mean, Paul's a prisoner. What's he got, right? I mean, he's going to be a little strapped for cash. The Venmo may not be connected yet. But it would be easy to think that from Paul's letter that he's impoverished and without any resources after all he describes himself as a prisoner and an old man. Yet he wasn't in a dungeon, but on house arrest. It would be easy to think that he doesn't that he's impoverished, but it means he had the resources to pay rent and also to pay for the Roman guard that's attached to him or supervising his activities. He had money for an attorney to process his appeals before the Roman court, and even then, good lawyers weren't cheap. Some things never change. We don't know the source of his income, whether it was from wealthy patrons or from his own savings, or from the support of the local churches, but Paul's promise wasn't an empty one. He was ready to pay the tab. Yet Paul explicitly states an important caveat in verse 19. Look with me there to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, what was Onesimus' debt to Philemon in light of Philemon's debt to Christ through Paul? Onesimus may have taken some money or property belonging to Philemon to finance his little vacation, perhaps even the equivalent of a few thousand bucks, but what real harm had come to Philemon? you see, he still had his household. He still had his church, his family, probably his business or his profession. Paul is making a very subtle request. Well, maybe not that subtle for proportionality. Proportionality. He's saying, in light of what God has done for you through Christ, are you really ready to forgive Onesimus? For all the debt that you owed to God through Christ, which has been paid by Christ at the cross, are you really going to hold something against your brother in Christ, Onesimus? Let me offer a paraphrase of the last few verses that might be helpful in understanding the context of the letter. Philemon, my dear brother in the Lord, Paul writes, look at what you've gained in spite of what you've lost. If you need the money, I'm good for it. But don't forget what God in Christ has done for you, my brother. God in Christ reconciled you to himself, not counting your trespasses against you. He has made you a new creation. He is your God, and you are his own treasured possession. And now Onesimus, like you, has become a son to me. Of his own free will, he has returned you to make things right. As his brother in the Lord, care for him as I care for you. Receive him as me and welcome him home. For one day, I hope to be received by you in person and to see my two boys together. When by God's grace, I come to visit you. Verse 20. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now let me close by saying that reconciliation is a command based on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ who bore our sins in this body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Yet I acknowledge that there might be circumstances that do not warrant a full restoration of a relationship. I've encountered too many victims of genuine abuse to suggest that every relationship can or should be restored. Sadly, however, I've also encountered too many estrangements within the body of Christ, broken relationships between professing Christians because of a careless word, a harsh response, or even a genuine disagreement. These things ought not to be so, beloved. Consider the words of our older brother Paul in light of this, breath, in light of this letter. If you have been wronged at all, If someone owes you anything, charge that to Christ's account. He has already paid your debt in full. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have justified us and cleansed us of our sins through your spirit. You have adopted us as sons and daughters, having forgiven us all that we have done and all that we have failed to do you have washed us in the waters of baptism and you fellowship with us at your table. Now, Lord, your words remind us of the great debt our Savior paid on our behalf, reconciling us to you through his body on the cross. May we seek to be reconciled to those whom we have offended or those who have offended us in some way. Fill our hearts with compassion and gratitude for the mercies you have extended to us in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.